You're listening to a podcast by the Leadership Ministry Team at Texas Methodist Foundation. TMF's Leadership Ministry connects diverse, high-capacity leaders in conversations and environments that create a network of courage, learning, and innovation in order to help the church lean into its God-appointed mission. For more information, visit tmf-fdn.org. Hi, everyone. I'm Lisa Greenwood, and you are listening to our third of six bonus episodes of Reservoirs of Resilience. Today's story comes from Bill Lamar. When Bill was appointed senior pastor of Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., which sits on the longest continuously held piece of property by persons of African descent in the District of Columbia, the bishop asked him how he felt. And Bill said he felt like he had 200 years of history on his back. The bishop agreed and said, now go do something with it. Now in his seventh year as pastor of Metropolitan, Reverend Lamar is certainly doing something remarkable. His leadership is so inspiring and I'm thrilled you get to hear him today. Bill draws resilience from ancestors of the past and from visions of future generations who will continue the church's ministry. His story is a powerful account of the church's capacity to be more loyal to what God is doing in the world than to anything or anyone else. There are so many moments, phrases, concepts he shares in this recording that caught me. You may want to have a notepad ready. Here's just one quote that I keep returning to. He says, The church has to be resilient enough to understand our power is not generated from the government of the United States, but our power is generated from the one who defeated death. I'm really grateful for Bill's witness that moves all of us to discover the depths of our own resilience and to lead out of our deepest purpose. Let's listen. Methodists are familiar with annual conferences, and I've been under appointment since 1999. And I can remember the elders, the preachers who formed me and formed my generation of servants, uh, ordained servants of the church. They said that bishops have two powers, the powers to, power to appoint and the power to disappoint. And I've, I've never forgotten that. And so I went to annual conference in the spring of 2014, knowing that my address would change. And for those who have been in similar circumstances, it's a weighty feeling. There is exhilaration, but there is also trepidation. You don't necessarily know what you're going to find. And one thing uh, that I have learned in these 21 years of pastoring is you don't know what you have until you get there, until you've lived among the people. Now, I did have a heads up because blessedly the bishop who was going to change my address had served once as the pastor of the church where he was sending me. And so we were at a meeting and he said to me, Bill, I'm going to move you to Metropolitan. This is about six or eight months before the appointment came. And I met with him to explain to him why I thought he might want to think again. And he said, Bill, I'm not asking your permission. I'm telling you that I'm going to send you there. And he said, because I believe that you can do the job. And so I'm at the annual conference, knowing that my address will change. And you really don't know what's going to happen until it happens. So calls the name of Metropolitan AME Church, 
which sits on the longest continuously held piece of property by persons of African descent in the District of Columbia. And he calls my name. And I don't remember walking to get it, but I got the piece of paper. I got the appointment. And after the conference was over and people had dwindled, the bishop invited me into his office. And in the office were two presiding elders, which in the United Methodist tradition would be district superintendents. All three of those men had served Metropolitan as pastor. The bishop from 86 to 96, one from 96 to 2001, and the other from 2001 to 2014, my immediate predecessor. And so the bishop asked me in the company of those men who had also served Metropolitan, Bill, how do you feel? And I said, Bishop, I feel like you just strapped 200 years of history on my back. And he said, I did. Now go do something with it. And so these three men who were my predecessors held hands with me and we prayed. And I started that journey seven years ago. And I feel like it's a story of resilience, first of all, because no 39-year-old can carry 200 years of history. And so what was necessary for me was to understand what had come before me and over time allow God to show me what could be possible in the present moment. Another story that never leaves me is I've always been bookish. And my mother taught adult education when I was much younger. We were living in Macon, Georgia, my hometown. She brought home this tattered textbook called Eyewitness, the Negro in American History. And it was a massive book of Black history that had been published in the late 60s, early 70s. And she knew even at 8, 9, 10, I would read every word. And I did. And I came across a picture in that book of Metropolitan AME Church. That was the first time I had seen it. I was barely 10 years old. And nearly 30 years later, 29 years later to be exact, I am appointed pastor of the church. And many of the people whose images I saw in the book, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells Barnett, Mary McLeod Bethune, W.E.B. Du Bois, Henry Highland Garnett, Henry McNeil Turner, Daniel Alexander Payne, they spoke from the pulpit. Booker T. Washington, they spoke from the pulpit. They preached there. They taught there. They organized there. And so when I think of resilience, I think about the fact that the people who built Metropolitan Church, which is an architectural wonder in downtown Washington, many of them, like the ones that sent money from our annual conferences around the nation in the 1870s and 80s to build the church. If you sent $100, your annual conference's name was placed in stained glass. So when you teach and preach there, you see Arkansas annual conference, East Texas, Alabama, North Georgia. And these people were alive in the 1880s. Many had been enslaved. They had a vision for themselves that the United States did not have for them. They were seen as not human. They were seen as property by the folks who controlled the United States of America. But they knew who they were in the eyesight of God. And so they built this grand cathedral. And what I tell people is they built this grand church 
because they knew who God was and they knew how God saw them. And their mission was to build something bold in the city. And I say for two reasons. One is to continue an unbroken assertion of African and African-American theological independence. And two was to stand as a theological bulwark against the worst impulses of American empire and American white supremacist policies, politics, and theology. And so we stand there with our arms open, welcome to all people, but we also stand there with a loud voice and with the potential to organize against the worst impulses that we see lived out even in the present day in Imperial United States of America. The resilience of those who founded this church, who built such a splendid uh, facility, who brought into that facility some of the brightest minds, never bifurcating theological work from ethical work in the world. Understanding that the world that we want requires our co-creation, that God invites us. God has not finished creating the world. The universe expands. Possibilities for human community are still before us. So we are called as co-creators. We're called to labor alongside God as God inaugurates new heaven, new earth. So their resilience, when I walk into the sanctuary and I'm dwarfed by how massive it is and my soul is lifted by its sublime beauty, I know what the ancestors did to get it to that place. And I also hear God and the ancestors telling me what I have to do in my moment. And so when you ask about the source of resilience, for me, without a doubt, there is an ancestral source. So I remember one of my pastors growing up who would use scripture to, to lay out this, this, this statement, which resonates, and I use it often, that we live in houses that we did not build. We drink water from wells that we did not dig. We drink wine from vineyards that we did not plant nor harvest. That I live in the house that the ancestors have given to me to steward during my brief lifetime. And so what resilience looks like for us, it looks like the conversations that I had today with leaders, how do we strengthen metropolitan such that the person who is the pastor in 70 years does not have to think about how they remain financially solved. How do we deeply in the roots, in the soil of how we do our work in the world, make sure, make clear the vision that God has given us around worship, liberation, and service. And so resilience, that ancestral resilience is fed by worship. And to me, that speaks to the fact that God invites us into the mystery of the divine life, that God calls us into the dance that exists between God, who is mother, father, God, who is son, God, who is spirit. Human beings are called into that dance. That's worship, God's invitation. Come into my life and participate in what I'm doing. And then worship leads to liberation. If you read the Exodus text, God says to Moses, 
let my people go so that they can worship me. Because what is clear in the text is people that are held in physical bondage or spiritual bondage or emotional bondage, cultural bondage, are not free to worship as God wills for them to worship. Things restrain them from entering fully into that divine life and that divine dance. And so God raises up people like Miriam and Moses to set people free. So the worship of God, being in the presence of God, living in the divine life, frees us. And that liberation is not just spiritual. That liberation is physical, emotional, economic, political. I disagree with those who really seek to erase the corporeality of the gospel. The gospel sets free bodies as well as spirits and souls. So worship leads to liberation and those who are free can serve alongside God. And so our resilience looks like the commitment to worship, liberation, and service of our ancestors and how we make that live today. And that's where I think I want to end the story. Um, what it looks like for us today is where we hear the cries of God's people is where we feel like God is. God is in Washington, D.C., among people who cannot afford to live in the city. And so what we're doing in coalition with other uh, congregations is, and this is something that Christian communities are often afraid to do, probably because the people that control the economy and the political power often are in our congregations, but we got to move beyond that fear. We must demand for those who are crying out the type of human flourishing that they deserve as people made in the image and likeness of God. So we organize and demand from the mayor public land so that our siblings can live in integrity. We demand from businesses living wages. We demand the kinds of nourishment and food. We seek to eradicate food deserts. We're on the front line of everything that makes for human flourishing because we believe that that work is the work of the gospel. It is spiritual work. I can remember years ago reading William Stringfellow, who said that the physical is the spiritual and the spiritual is the physical. Those who are brutalized physically are brutalized spiritually. Those who are brutalized spiritually are brutalized physically. And in the United States of America, because I think we specialize in the hiding of history, I think we specialize as a church in not holding the state to account, but merely parroting the state's propaganda. There is not liberty and justice for all. And the church has to say that. There is not equality uh, before the law. And the church has to say that. There is not a democratic reality for everyone who lives here. And the church has to say that. The church has to be resilient enough to understand that our power is not generated from the government of the United States, but our power is generated from the one who defeated death. And we have to be resilient enough to be more loyal to what God is trying to do in the world to make all things new than to be loyal to the powers who seek to keep power relationships as they are. This is difficult, but this is the kind of resilience that is called upon 
And this is the kind of ancestral nourishment I get when thinking about those who came before me in this church's 183-year history and the fact that what I want to do is to recede into history so that when this church has existed for 260 years, someone will be interviewing a pastor and she will be able to say that because of what was done prior to my coming, we inherited a resilience and we live into a resilience and we're trusting that the God who brought us is going to keep us going forward and we are willing to sacrifice and pay the price for loving all people, for speaking truth before those who are powerful and trusting that God's power of life is more powerful than the politics of death that afflict us day by day. 